0: Welcome to Trained, a podcast exploring the cutting edge of holistic fitness. I'm Ryan Flaherty, the Senior Director of Performance at Nike. On every episode, I call up the world's leading experts and athletes to talk about mindset, movement, nutrition, recovery, and sleep. All the ways to train your body and mind. Today, I'm connecting with a renowned sports journalist and author who's been looking at how being a jack of all trades in sport and life may be more likely to make you a master of just one.
1: Sometimes the thing that gives you an apparent head start can actually undermine your long-term development. And I think that's a situation we've gotten into, whether you look at it sociologically or from neurological development, and you want this broad exposure to different gross motor skills and fine motor skills when you're young for durability, for improving your anticipatory skills, all these things.
0: That's David Epstein, best-selling author of Range and the Sports Gene. Talking about how intense focus and dedication might be our shortest, but not our best path to mastery. It's a revelation that goes against a lot of received wisdom. For years, coaches encouraged early, intense specialization. Pick your sport before high school. Throw yourself into it. Never give up. But the extensive research Epstein has compiled paints a different picture. It shows that many of our greatest athletes have incredibly eclectic backgrounds. They try dance, swimming, hockey, curling. They train different muscle groups and energy systems. They follow their joy and talent to narrow the field. And when they finally settle on a sport, they know how to improvise and adapt. And Epstein's model doesn't just apply to sports. Today, he tells us how artists, scientists, and CEOs have benefited from exploration and even a little chaos. And maybe most importantly, he says that we can all keep on learning well into adulthood by throwing ourselves into new situations, taking up new skills, and having new, wide-ranging conversations.
1: That is a nicely color-coded bookshelf.
0: (laughs) You know what? I wish I could take credit for it, but it is my wife that did that. (laughs)
1: Pass along my
0: congratulations. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) She's making me look much better than I actually am. (laughs) Well, David, first, thank you for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it.
1: Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, and I'm I'm a huge fan of your books. And when I ran a facility down in San Diego, we trained a lot of young athletes. And over the years, I've shared a lot of your research and data with those athletes and their parents. So from all of us, thank you for your work. That's gratifying to hear from someone who's actually doing the work where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, totally. I, you've had a fascinating career, and for those who may not be familiar with your work and where you came from, would you mind just giving us a little background? I grew up
1: a huge sports fan. Did football, basketball, baseball, cross country, on track at various times in high school. But in my formal education in college, I was training to be a scientist. Mm. You know, I have like a master's in environmental science. But what got me into writing about sports and science was actually, you know, just to give a heads up—a sad story. I had a training partner who was, you know, one of the top ranked 800 meter runners for his age in the country. And he actually dropped dead at the end of a race uh, of a mile. Oh, my gosh. Young Jamaican guy, first of his family of immigrants who was going to go to college and all these things. And that threw me for a loop. And I'd Mm. read my hometown papers and it would say heart attack. And I I realized, like, you know, now I'm thinking about science in my education. I don't even know what that means. Like that. Mm. What does that mean for someone who was that young and that healthy? And eventually his family They signed a waiver allowing me to gather up his medical records. Turned out he had this disease that's usually the cause of young athletes dropping dead, caused by a single gene mutation. And I decided I wanted to merge my interests in sports and science and write about that condition. So I sort of got off the science track through various goofy jobs. (laughs) I was the midnight to morning reporter at the New York Daily News for a while. I'm sure you can imagine. Nothing happy that's going (laughs) in a New York tabloid happens between midnight and 10 a.m. Yeah, And I got to SI actually as a temp fact checker you know, and I was like, hey, I want to write about sudden cardiac death in athletes. It's kind of like, no, you know, you're the temp. And then the Olympic marathon trials came to Central Park and one of the top 10 guys in the country died like 15 blocks from our office in the middle of the race. Mm. And so as a temp had this cover story about sudden cardiac death in athletes and kind of became the Sports Illustrated Science writer. So it was really like all of the things that seemed to have worked well in my career were me like taking skills where I was around other people who had those same skills, and I was very average, yeah. and then bringing them somewhere where suddenly they are seen as unique, basically. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Is that? Yeah, please, please. It's sort of my perception, and I'll just, you know, obviously I'm speculating and simplifying, but that, like, there were a lot of sort of old-school coaches who were really good communicators but don't necessarily know anything about the science. And then there's a, a newer generation of coaches who really, you know, know their physiology and keep up with it, but maybe are not such good communicators. And it's like mm-hmm. these people who bridge that is where
0: like, there's a lot of action. Yes, you're a hundred percent right. Take college football as an example. I would be the worst college football strength coach purely because they want someone to establish and set culture, which is very different from applying science and performance and blending those two worlds and being able to communicate it at, you know, all different learning levels and abilities and learning styles. But it's about the energy and the changing culture and holding people accountable and changing discipline and behavior change more than it is about the science That's cool. So we're both kind of integrators and and trying to hold like two different
1: worlds and pull them together in a way that's actually sort of digestible and hopefully usable for people.
0: Very much so, which is why I was so excited to actually talk to you. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, which is something that's near and dear to kind of my heart based on my background is this idea of specialization, which you talk about a lot. But can you just talk about where specialization for such young people started and your interest in helping disprove that myth?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's been sort of a natural consequence of, you know, as as more resources have moved into sports and competitive sports, you know, we've developed, like so many things, a a winner-take-all market. Many, many more people are just pure spectators now to this very small number of people who are incredibly elite. That, combined with things like Tiger Woods at age two on national television— showing off his golf swing, when I talked to Malcolm Gladwell about this, he said, it's like a human cat video. You know, you just can't, you can't look away from it. <laughs> <I can't stick. laughs> and the guy has a way with words. <laughs> we have an obsession with precocity, right? Cause I think our intuition mm-hmm. is when we see two people at a certain place to assume that that's the separation between two people and their ability is a stable trajectory forever as if development were totally linear, but it's not right. Mm-hmm. Development's nonlinear. And so I think it's partly just as the rewards became bigger you know, our intuition would get the best of us, as well as some sort of poor financial incentives. Like when I lived in Brooklyn a few years ago, there was a U7 travel soccer team that met at like a schoolyard near me. I don't think there's anyone in the world who thinks that six-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people that they need to travel, (laughs) right? But it's the person who runs that league. It's in their interest to say, if you're not on U7, you can't be on U8. If you're not on U8, you can't be on U9. And so I think it's really ramped up, especially since sports became increasingly global, the major sports like in the mid 80s. Mm -hmm. Then you saw some interesting things, right? Like the NBA goes global. And all of a sudden, the proportion of men in the NBA who are at least seven feet tall, like doubles over two seasons, a little more from five to 11%. And most of them foreigners, right? Sports just exploded competitively and globally, and the rewards became bigger. And I think that trickled down to kids in a way that's not often developmentally good. I mean, I'll say like, If you want to win the U7 championships, then specializing, like teaching the kids set plays and all this stuff, like probably the way to go. But one of the themes of range was that sometimes the thing that gives you an apparent head start can actually undermine your long-term development. And I think that's a situation we've gotten into, whether you look at it sociologically or from neurological development, you want this broad exposure to different gross motor skills and fine motor skills when you're young for durability, for Mm -hmm. improving your anticipatory skills, all these things. So I think it's been just this winner-take-all market is tantalizing people. It's like The Ring from Lord of the Rings. (laughs)
0: Yeah, totally. I think it's interesting you bring up Tiger because I've been fortunate to work with another athlete who has a similar storyline, which is Serena. I worked with her for about seven years prior to coming to Nike. And the misconception for her, though, is very similar to what you talk about. It's like, I know in your TED Talk, you go through all of these people who are like could be considered world's best at whatever they did. You brought up Van Gogh, a couple of mathematicians, scientists, and you said, you know, on the surface, on paper or what you hear stories, you hear that they're the best in the world at this thing. And it may seem to you that they specialize in that from a young age. But when you show them from the, you know, the childhood to where they were in in adulthood, when they reached that expert level, they sampled everything. They'd done a ton of different things. And it wasn't just that specialization. Same thing with Serena. Like what people don't realize is yes, she played tennis at a very young age. And she had a dad who drove her and her sister very hard in that specialized sport. But Serena loves dance more than she loves anything else. And she does dance four times a week. And she does things that you just don't see or aren't talked about. Doesn't mean they aren't there. And you had brought that up about a, a couple experts in that way too. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's just the story is easier and better when it's simple right? Totally.
1: And since you mentioned Serena, you know, obviously people reach various levels of performance via all sorts of different methods, right? There's a huge amount of individual variability. But Serena, I got a chance to talk to her last year. I didn't know that story about her. I was sort of like Mm. apologizing, being like, I know you didn't, you know. And she was like, no, I did ballet, uh, track and field, gymnastics, taekwondo, I think she said. And she said, me and Venus, we learn how to throw football overhand to learn our serve snap, we still warm up that way. I was like, I worked at Sports Illustrated. I didn't (laughs) do that. So that really says to me that even when those stories are there, and even though they're the norm, we tell the exception one, right? So again, I think it's so much this obsession with precocity too, like Mark Zuckerberg, he's like sort of the picture of what we think of when we think of like this genius founder, young people are just smarter when he was 22, right? Mm. But Northwestern, MIT and the US Census Bureau Last year, released some research that showed the average age of a founder of a fast-growing tech startup on the day of founding is 45.4. People wouldn't guess that. We focus on the exception story because they're the exception. And I think the problem, especially for like focusing on the tiger story, is partly it's just dramatic. But also, because like you said, it seems like this really tidy narrative that's really easy to extrapolate to anything that we want to be good at. The problem is I think those extrapolations often backfire really badly because most things aren't golf, it turns out.
0: Yes, exactly. And that leads me to this idea that you you talked about this, you know, the difference between kind and wicked, you know, learning environments, which I think is a brilliant way to put it. Kind being something like chess or like golf, a very controlled environment, and then wicked being like what life is, right? It's like 2020 is a great example of a wicked learning environment. It is throwing us curveball after curveball. You just think it's going to end and it just never ends, right? And there's no way to kind of prepare or even know that some of these things are coming. That's a wicked learning environment. But like to your point, and, and the, what you illustrate so beautifully in range, is this idea that those kind of learning environments don't set us up for something like 2020. People who are able to stay moving forward, not fall apart in a year like we're having, generally were brought up in some form of a wicked learning environment to where you're dealing with adversity.
1: That terminology is brilliant. It's from the psychologist, Robin Hogarth. Basically, he was trying to resolve this paradox or confusion in expertise literature that showed with like really specialized narrow practice... People got better at certain things. And in other cases, they didn't get better or got worse or thought they were getting better but didn't. And, like, why did you see these different trajectories with experience? And it turns out that it has to do with the domain characteristics. So a kind learning environment is one where, like, the next steps and goals are clear. Rules are clear and never change. Patterns just repeat. Not much human behavior, if any, is involved. Feedback is quick and accurate work next year will look like work last year. So Mm -hmm. golf, right? Chess, Grandmaster's advantage is based on repetitive patterns. So actually there, if you haven't started studying those patterns by age 12, your chances of reaching international master status drops from like 1 in 4 to 1 in 55. But that's Mm -hmm. also why it's relatively so easy to automate because it's based on these repetitive patterns. On the other end of the spectrum, and it is a spectrum, are what Hogarth called wicked learning environments where next steps and goals may not be clear, rules may change, Patterns don't just repeat. Feedback might be delayed or inaccurate. Work next year might not look like work last year. And the more dynamic an area gets and the more you need to take knowledge and apply them to sort of new problems, right? Which in sports you can think of as you go up levels, right? Suddenly you yeah. have to face this, do this new problem solving with previous knowledge. That's the situation that most of us are in in most of the things that we want to do. And so that's why I think in many ways, golf was kind of a uniquely bad example from which to extrapolate to the rest of the world. Yeah. Some research came out that I thought was really neat about this. It matched people in a dozen different countries for their parents' educational background, their own years of education, and their national test scores when that was available. The difference was some got this focused, career-specific education, and others got a broader general education. And the pattern was those who got the career-specific education more likely to get hired right out of training, higher salary right away, but they end up so much less adaptable that their growth rates are slower- And when their industry changes, they end up like going backward or being out of work for a long time. Mm. So they win in the short term, but they're so much less adaptable that they lose in the long run. That pattern showed up in all but one of the countries, essentially. And the faster changing an economy of the country was, the greater the advantage was for the people who had that broader background. And so it sort of reminded me of some of the sports data about this durability and adaptability that comes with having a broader toolbox when things are changing.
0: A hundred percent. When you mentioned durability, I even think to myself that in some sports, specifically when it comes to the singles-type sports or solo sports, where you're not a part of a team, there's that social aspect too. It's that aspect that doesn't get talked about of teaching you about what it's like to be a part of a team and playing different roles on teams, being the leader, being someone who just plays their role and owns that, contributes to the team. Like there's something about that that gets missed in specialization too. Is there anything in the research that you've been looking at from like more of the social and EQ standpoint than just the long-term success in that sport? That's really interesting. I mean, I definitely agree with you, right? Like, I think
1: sometimes we give lip service to the things that sports can teach, and then some of our systems work to kind of undermine some of that stuff. Yeah. I don't know that I've seen anything like dispositive on that, but I think there's a lot of sort of suggestive you know, research yeah. about that, like social loafing, right? Because you can have a situation where as teams grow in certain tasks you get this phenomenon called social loafing where some people basically just assume other people are going to take care of it. And you can <laughs> mitigate that by making people feel accountable to the other team members in the group, right? And this, this is in some ways like what whole societies do, you know, Yeah. hopefully, is that yeah. they have these structures, that have these sort of rules that make people feel accountable. Some of the most interesting research I saw that I think is related to that was from the Netherlands. And this followed kids from age 12 some of whom went on to go on to the national soccer team and at least one was on the team that was a runner up in the World Cup. And one of the things that the kids who were really successful would learn was self-regulatory learning. Basically, they would learn how to take accountability for their own learning and sometimes for their own teammates. Like you know, I don't think this thing is hard enough for us or we need to work on this other thing. Even sometimes checking with their teammates about what they thought worked and and what didn't. And that would totally transfer the classroom. So those kids would start to show that self-regulatory learning or taking accountability for their own learning, basically. And that was something that developed in these kids who went up to the top. I think that's a super important thing for people, no matter what they're doing. I don't think we like think about and reflect on our own performance enough where you stop and think, what am I good at? What was I bad at? What do I need to work on? How am I going to do that? What are the steps to do that? And so I think in sports is a great sort of crucible for kids to learn this self-regulatory learning, which is one of the most transferable things imaginable. basically. Most of us, most of what we're doing is we get to an area of competence, a rut of competence, or as the economist Russ Roberts told me, he said, it's a hammock of competence because so comfortable (laughs) you don't want to get out. We get like good enough. And then you step there and you stop worrying about improving. Right. And at a certain point, if you want to keep improving, you have to say, well, now I need to go find something that is harder for me, basically. Mm. And and I think we don't really do that.
0: Yeah. One thing I was going to ask you um, in regards back to the kind and, and wicked environments, is there anything we can do, you know, in our 20s and 30s and 40s that will give us more of a general training that can help us overcome a much more specialized youth?
1: I don't think it's too late, especially for durability. Like I spent some time with a physiologist from Cirque du Soleil, and these are, right, a lot of them are, were Olympic athletes they recruit from the yeah, Olympics. Yeah. And he was telling me that looking at some of the research, they decided to try teaching some of their performers some of the basics of some other performers' skills, essentially, at Cirque du Soleil and at the National Circus School in, in Canada. And they tracked their injury rates next to Canadian gymnastics, I guess, or at least they were for this research. And he said it dropped their injury rates by like a third just diversifying these sorts of movement patterns. I think we can guess why that would be. I, you know, sure, sure. There's stuff that makes sense to me, but the fact is it it happened. And so I don't think it matters so much if a kid is like putting on a basketball jersey in addition to a soccer jersey. I think it's about diversifying their, their movement patterns and the problems they're trying yeah. to solve. So like if you go to Brazil and the kids are playing futsal, they're playing on sand one day and on cobblestones the next day and in different shapes all the time. So it's the same game technically, but... They're really diversifying their movements and problem solving or Andy and Jamie Murray's mother runs a tennis camp and there it's like kids will be playing tennis through tree branches or something. So it has a racket Mm -hmm. and a ball, looks tennis like enough for the parents, but it's still diversifying their perceptual skills, you know, and all these things. So I think you can build in diversity without having to just like sign them up for a million sports, you know, or, or dance or martial arts or things outside. In the wider work world, I think there are a lot of ways to do it. I keep something I call, this sounds a little stupid, but that I call a book of small experiments where when I transitioned out of being a college athlete, I kept like a training log for my professional life like I did. And I found it didn't quite fit the same way because you don't just have like a time goal, you know, or if you have a goal, it's like you need actionable stuff. And so I started this book of small experiments where I'll say, I want to learn about this skill or this domain that I would work in or whatever. And at least every other month, I force myself to put down a hypothesis about how I think I could do that and then to find some way to act on it. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's as simple as talking to someone in some area I'm interested in that I don't know anything about. Other times it's as involved as like taking an online class or something like that, but I'm I'm constantly forcing myself to do that. And I started doing that because when I became more on my own, I didn't have the serendipity of diversifying my my network the same way. So I felt like I needed to set up systems to make sure that happened. You know, it's like, Bill Gore, the engineer who founded the company that created Gore-Tex, founded it based on Mm -hmm. his observation that companies do their most creative work in times of crisis because the disciplinary boundaries go out the window and everybody starts learning from each other. Or he said real work happens in the carpool. And I think that's a particular (laughs) challenge for us now because with all this remote work, like where's the carpool? And I don't think that means we can't have it. I just think we have to be intentional about diversifying our streams of information and continually trying to build on our skills. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, my best experience at a conference has been some serendipitous meeting of someone in a hall that I wouldn't even know how to engineer if I tried.
0: And yet that person
1: ends up opening a worldview for me. It reminds me of this research on the so-called strength of weak ties, where when people get better jobs from where they are, it's usually not through the center of their network because those people sort of know the same people that they do and the same things that Mm. they do. It's from these fringes of their network who give them a keyhole view into some other area where they might be able to work. Even keeping a vibrant edge of your network can keep information coming in and out. Like hosting a podcast, right? I would imagine one of the perks of it is just new ideas coming in. Diversifying your information streams, basically. And I think that can be especially tricky if you don't realize that you're often being like algorithmically pointed to your information sources these days. So you have to proactively try to diversify.
0: After the break, David and I will get into technology's impact on sport, why the world's top athletes train just to keep playing and where his next big ideas are leading him. If you're enjoying this episode of Trained, here's some good news. You'll find more wellness expertise every day on Nike.com, the Nike app, the Nike Run Club app, and the Nike Training Club app. You can learn more about movement, mindset, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, and you can get started on a workout as soon as you finish this episode. I wanna switch gears a little bit and go back to your first book, Sports Gene. One of the things I love about it was when you emphasize the role of technology in the explosion of performance, it humbled me in a way where at thinking, you know, as a physiologist, as somebody who's tried pushing the envelopes of human performance to look back and go, wait, actually some of the biggest <laughs> reasons for these records to drop are technology based and it's hundred percent true. Could you just talk a little bit about how technology has affected the world sport? One of the examples I used was like, if you just looked at the times
1: between Jesse Owens and Usain Bolt, you know, Owens would be like 20 meters behind or something like that. I can't remember how much it was. But the fact is he had to like dig a starting hole, right, for himself to start in. He's running on cinders and Bolt's running on like a finely tuned surface meant to have like good elastic rebound to give Mm -hmm. him him energy. And he's coming out of blocks and wearing much more finely tuned shoes and all these things. And so if you compared their joint speeds, probably it would have been a pretty close race. Like Owens would have been like a half a stride behind him or something like that. And so it's all these changes that we don't usually think of. Like one of the ones that surprised me was like the drops in swimming because they were really dramatic where you see records coming down a little bit, but it's really these cliffs that you see over time. And one was like when people invented the flip turn, call that technology or technique, whatever. Innovation, innovation, yeah. Yeah, and and like low-friction swimsuits. The one that really surprised me was the gutters on the sides of pools that take the runoff so there's less turbulence going back into the pool caused a huge drop, and I just didn't think of that. And Some that I didn't even mention, like – goggles right because people could start training a lot more because like their eyes didn't get irritated Mm. when they were in the pool and it's all this stuff like one of the famous examples is the clap skate in speed skating where it has a a skate that hinges at the toe so you can take your heel off but the blade stays down so you can keep applying force to the ice even while you're repositioning your feet and you know it's just these huge drops in records and so technology's had a huge impact you know and i think that's controversial to people but it's always been that way it's always been changing. Totally. And as I think the question is, where do we draw meaningful lines? And to what extent do we also view this as part of the creative endeavor that is sports, right? So I understand why there's debate about it, but I actually think that's part of the fun.
0: Yeah, it is. And I think that's why it's always you here, you know, on sports talk shows where there's always these debates about who's the greatest of all time. And it's so difficult to measure people from different generations. When I work with an athlete who's a professional athlete nowadays, I do not focus on performance. Like if I get Serena to one, one 10th faster, jump one inch higher, it doesn't matter really. Ultimately she's fast explosive enough. It's purely on keeping her upright. That's been a big shift. I think over the 15 years I've gotten into this, it went from really focused on performance improvement to really now just keep me healthy. Like just do everything you can to keep me on my feet and I'll be okay. And you look at like the NBA, right? When you get deep into the playoffs, it's attrition. It's who has their starting five standing the longest generally will win. I mean, look at the Warriors, Clay Thompson now. It's not about performance as much at the professional levels it used to be.
1: So UK sport, I remember I talked to some people who worked on a project where they were losing a ton of training hours for their Olympic boxers with hand injuries. They put some accelerometers in the gloves and realized the way they were taping the hands was causing all this force to like concentrate on the middle knuckles And so they Mm. came up with a new way to tape where they would give like a bar of tape, basically, that the athlete could squeeze in their hand. And if they squeeze it, it disperses some of the force across their knuckles. And they gained like a thousand training hours in the Olympic cycle, right? So even from a performance standpoint, the things you'd have to do to make Serena one-tenth faster— it's a better bet probably for you to keep her upright and she can keep training a lot more.
0: That's it. That's exactly it. And it's the same thing for other sports, right? Where you're keeping them practicing more, you're keeping them studying more, on their feet more to where they're learning at a higher rate than they were if they were injured or in the training room, missing practices. Yeah, 100% agree. I
1: think some of what people's common intuition about athlete aging is, and not in every case, but in a lot of cases, isn't real. They think athletes expire when they're like, 30 or something. Most pro athletes have to retire not for reasons of their choosing because they expired, right? Something else goes on. They get injured or, you know, someone younger comes up or whatever it is. But if someone can stay healthy and train over a long term, I think what the common notion is of how you deteriorate is just you don't have to deteriorate that way (laughs) if you keep keep your training
0: up. You're totally right. And I think Russell Wilson's a great example. He's somebody who I think he's got the chance to play until. Mid to late 40s, if he wants to, just given the way he's taken care of himself from a very early point in his career. I think what's happening now is athletes, LeBron's a great example of this as well, are getting smarter earlier in their careers of how to take care of themselves and their bodies and how to train. They're not getting caught up in like go as hard as I can and carry over from college where it's all, you know, Olympic lifting or pushing your maxes to where you get to the league and it's much more train smarter, not harder, taking the days off, counting the minutes, making sure that your load is matched up with you're taking some time and giving your body recovery breaks where it needs it. And they're just getting smarter at it. And I think that's what we're going to start seeing is more and more athletes playing later and later into their careers. And I think too, ultimately there's a psychological phenomenon that happens when you reach your second and third injury. And I just think you just get to a point where that motivation just kind of stalls out for you a bit. I think where Kobe's last Achilles injury was a great example of that. It's just, I think that took a toll where, it just was how much more can I do of this? And, and, you know, he's another one who found smart training later in his career. As these athletes get smarter, younger, we're just going to see them playing longer and longer because they're just going to realize that it's on them to manage themselves. And I think athletes taking it more into their own hands of saying, you know, actually, you know, I'm going to take a break for a couple games is where we're going to start to see longevity increase.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And this, I think, is is something that, like, the general public should pay attention to. That, like, you don't have to age the way that maybe you think you do if you yeah, yeah. keep your healthy habits up. You know, and again, this was Cirque du Soleil. Again, when I saw some of their data, you know, typical medical dogmas that, like, after 30 or whatever, your bone density, the best you can do is sort of slow down the deterioration. They had yeah. people who were, like, 60 who hadn't started because their levels of physical activity and resistance were so high,
0: totally. their bone
1: density hadn't started declining. So that medical dogma, it's the norm, but it doesn't have to be. And I wonder about guys like, you know, being an 800-meter runner, about Nick Simmons, you know, whose career I loved to follow. He came out of Division three, progressed really slowly, a little bit, year by year. I remember even early in his career, some people criticized him for like, you're not going hard enough. But he just had this steady yep. progression year over year with very few injuries and just kept getting better and better until he was the best. And yep. I wonder if coming out of Division three was an advantage for him in that way, and that He wasn't expected to sort of be a world beater right away when he got to the pros, and he developed really, really slowly. He must have had confidence in what he was doing.
0: Yeah, and I think like you're mentioning a great point is like based on where they come from too. A lot of the coaching and the, the thinking carries a lot with athletes early in their career. I can't tell you how many athletes I have to actually like decondition their brain to think that that's the only way you can prepare your body for a season or a year in the off season is because that's all they've known. And I think when an athlete's lucky enough to kind of maybe have somebody who looks at it a bit different, a little more of a longer term plan and approach, they can benefit from that. I think track and field. There's constantly these norms being broken. Like Usain Bolt's a great example. Everyone thought anyone over six foot four, you cannot run the 100 meter dash because you cannot accelerate with the shorter sprinters in the world, right? And then he comes out and, with a few changes to his start, is able to accelerate faster than the shorter runners in the field and, and all of a sudden his top end as we all know is on another level so he's now just dominating breaking records and now all of a sudden you're seeing six foot four six foot five sprinters popping up everywhere there's so much of the older thinking i think that we're going to continue to see shift and change that well we'll see athletes progressing longer into their 20s and 30s than we had in the past
1: that shift in thinking like you said like with bolt it was like oh the bigger guys can't do the sprinting and then bolt doesn't like he's faster because he's taller <laughs> like it just yeah, yeah. <laughs> like what yeah you can't do both and i think guys like the lebrons and kevin durant's because you know Normally, if you go to like a typical midsize high school, like if someone happens to be 6'4 or 6'5, they're playing center probably on the basketball yeah. team. Whereas now you're seeing these guys who are, you know, 6'8, 6'9, 6'10 who can play like guards. So you see guys at a younger level say like, well, I want to develop those skills. I think that's good. Or someone like Anthony Davis, right? He, he sort of had the good luck of he was small, learned guard skills, yeah. and then had this insane growth spurt. So he ends up tall with guard skills. And so I think some of those guys will change the game for guys yeah. at a younger level who are like... Oh, just because I'm tall doesn't mean I can't learn to like, exactly. handle the ball and, you
0: know, but it's back to your point of being more of a generalist, right? Like just because I'm six, five, I'm not just going to be a center. I'm going to learn ball skills i and learn how to shoot a three. I'm going to diversify my game to where I can offer more tools. And yeah, the game's evolved with those people. They're breaking those norms. And I think that's exciting to see kind of where the rest of that goes, which brings me to one of my last questions I have for you, which I was really excited to ask you, you know, based on all of the work you've done in sports gene and range, what are you most excited about? What are some areas that maybe you're looking at in terms of sport or even broader that you're just pretty excited to get into?
1: One thing I'm really curious about is, so again, sort of the frame through which I told Range was this kind versus wicked learning environments, right? And like, why do certain types of training and experiences help people improve in certain domains and not at all in other domains? And I got into all this literature about cognitive bias and people often don't know why they do what they do. And sometimes they don't know how they do what they do either. And all these biases of judgment that we have, and it may be interesting whether we can improve that. Because frankly, a lot of the research suggests it is extremely difficult to combat cognitive biases that people have. You know, everyone's familiar with confirmation bias, but there's like a whole host of other ones. A
0: lot more, yeah.
1: And so I've gotten curious, and this is sort of the main topic of Chapter 10 of RANGE, which is can you develop habits of mind that help you defeat a lot of those, those cognitive biases. And so that's something I've been spending some time with someone working on right now and trying to come up with sort of a program that might give people mm. a bit of a crash course in some of these habits of mind that seem to help mitigate cognitive biases. That said, a lot of the research, that research is not super optimistic about training plans that help people defeat cognitive biases, but there are definitely some glimmers of hope. And I think since it's so important, like improving people's judgment and decision-making and how they analyze information, that it's worth trying. And so I think there's some glimmers that can be expanded on. So that's something I'm sort of in the beginning of working with someone on a program. That That's one thing. Another thing I'm really interested in is useful constraints, basically. Like the most basic thing people might think of is like, a, if I told you to write a poem right now, you'd probably feel more put on the spot than if I was like, write a haiku. Yeah,
0: sure. Well, both, actually. I'm not the best poem writer, but it's okay.
1: <laughs> I've gotten interested in this idea of constraints that empower rather than deter people. And I think mm. that going to things as conceptual as like we talked about having accountability to like other team members, right? Like what are cultural constraints that people feel bound by that actually help them instead of making them feel constricted? So that's really vague. I'm sort of early in that interest, but that's something I'm really interested in right now.
0: Really cool. Well, man, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you joining us today. I've been really excited to talk to you because I'm a big fan of your books and hope you continue to keep pushing the limits on all of this.
1: I appreciate that. I really enjoyed this. I feel like I was (laughs) learning at least as much as you were.
0: I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? That conversation with a writer who spent the better part of a decade thinking about mental and physical range would touch on genetics, social psychology, recovery, and implicit bias. David is, I think, a living example of his own approach. He does what he does so well because he's never limited himself to just one area of interest. And talking to him, I started to wonder if that's kind of the way I operate too. I mean, this podcast is about training, but it's also about meditation, language, childbirth, business, and anti-racism. My talk with David reminded me that it's all training. The broader we go, the stronger we get. Next week, I'll be pushing that boundary again with Dr. Sophia Noble, an author and professor at UCLA who's been shining a light on the ways we're manipulated by our experiences online and what we can do about it. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trained, help us spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast. That way we can keep making great episodes for you to listen to, and it helps other people find us too. If you've got a question for me or my guests or a topic you'd like to hear covered, email me at trained at nike.com and I'll see what I can do. This has been Trained. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Trained. Just a reminder, always talk with your doctor before starting any training or nutrition program. The information we provide, it's not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And the individual opinions expressed here are just that, opinions. They shouldn't be taken as fact.